These are five, you know, so you guys come up, do you think? No, I, yeah. if it's up to the baby, yeah, can we guy grab one right of these? Up. What's that? I'll be able to steal one of these sides. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. take one of these for sure. Yeah, we'll take Sitting near the front. Yep. Okay, you can all switch after if you want. Just so we're not running up the aisle. Morning, um, Bailey. Good morning. Yeah, so we just transition we'll from the dedication to you guys. Reese will be up Sweet. there. The readings are already in the phone here. And then that's it. He'll print them all. The wreath. Is that the... The wreath will come out and then we'll show you which one they're like. Okay. Yeah, that's the Joshua. Okay, this is all new to me. I just mean, did I do that? No, 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 no. Like we talked, so, yeah. This is it's a good step. Good morning, everyone. It's, it's nice to have such a such a densely populated crowd here. It's um, even people in the front. That's that's refreshing. Yeah, if anybody needs. Uh, coloring sheets and crayons for kids. I won't be offended if you run to the back and grab any of those either. So our series for Advent is called Expect the Unexpected. And I think what we're trying to do is is look at some of these very familiar stories with the understanding that surprising and weird things happened in the run-up, in the the lead-in to the birth of of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not the sort of thing you would have guessed or figured out on your own. And today, uh, as Andrew's already mentioned, we're looking at Simeon and, and the kind of strangeness of that whole story. We live in a world in which we're, we're brought up to believe, at least in our Western cultures, that the best way to come to decisions is just figure out what the majority opinion on the topic is. And of course, in some sense, that's not so bad, because it means, at least in theory, that we're protected from, from dictators, and it means, in theory, that we should be protected from being lorded over by, by a ruling class, if you will. But we know that this isn't a perfect system. As, as Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. The problem, I believe, arises when we assume that the, the majority is always right, or that the majority opinion is just somehow sacred that it's the highest possible good and the only right way to arrive at a conclusion. Because sometimes the majority is wrong. We look back naturally enough with 2020 hindsight and we wonder how people could have been so silly or just so far off the mark. Like, how did it take, we, we think, how did it take doctors so long to figure out that basic sanitation like hand washing and sterilizing your instruments would prevent disease? How could people have thought that the Titanic was unsinkable or that there was no need to have enough lifeboats for everyone on board? How could people have thought World War I would be over by Christmas? That was the majority opinion when war broke out in August 1914. This thing will be over by Christmas and it'll be great. Was Around the World in 80 Days really more Oscar-worthy than Giant or The Ten Commandments in 1956? Still famous movies and no one even knows Around the World in 80 Days. It goes on and on. How could we think that personal computers would just be a fad and no one would ever catch on and want them in their house? And let's not even wade into any political options about whether the majority got it right or not because it's Christmas and we we want to be friends here and remain so. We also do this kind of thing in the world of, of religion and theology. This was so frequently the message of the apostles and the prophets was, hey, you guys are all off track come back to the Lord. 
The prophets frequently had to tell Israel, yeah, this is the majority opinion, and the majority opinion is wrong because you're all worshiping Baal and the other idols, and you need to come back to worship the Lord. And this has continued throughout church history. Think of John rebuking the churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Think of the, the early church fathers having to contend for the faith and orthodoxy. Think of the Protestant reformers having to correct the church in the Middle Ages. It's just gone on and on. And sometimes, you know, we can even turn to Scripture and try to bring Scripture in and and justify some of the wrong ideas that we have. But let's, uh, let's actually look at what Scripture says rather than just assuming we know everything. I would invite you to stand. I forgot to grab the usual pulpit Bible, so I'm going to have to read from my phone. I know that's not quite as quite as dramatic to hold up at the end and say this is the word of the Lord, but we'll we'll do what we can. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22, English Standard Version. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is God's word. You can have a seat. On the one hand, you know, it might seem... It might seem a little bit odd to jump in the historical account to after Jesus has been born, if we think of Advent as sort of the lead-up to celebrating the birth of Christ. But on the other, the passage today is clearly a kind of Advent passage. We've got this idea of explaining who Jesus will be, and we've got this very strong idea of connecting the Old Testament and what the prophets said to the New Testament. And, and Simeon sort of serves as this, this hinge point between the two. And so we find Mary and Joseph, baby Jesus, in the temple. I don't want to get bogged down in trying to harmonize the gospel narratives, particularly Luke and and Matthew, but it seems likely that the visit of the Magi and the subsequent flight to Egypt must have happened some point after this, even a year or two later maybe, rather than at basically the same time like we depict in all our nativity sets and productions and so forth. At any rate, there are a couple of customs from the Law of Moses at play in this narrative, and it will help if we can understand a little bit more clearly. Luke just kind of alludes to them as sort of shorthand, but it's worth knowing what exactly was going on here. 
Jesus was, if, if not biologically, then at least legally Mary and Joseph's son, their firstborn child. And as such, being good Jewish parents, this carried with it certain obligations. And like so much of their faith, this traced its origins all the way back to their slavery and their exodus out of Egypt. It says in Exodus 13, Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So there's the obligation because Jesus was their firstborn child that they had to present a redemption offering. But then also, there are certain purity requirements as well that would be required of any child. Mother and baby were to be in seclusion for a set amount of time, 40 days for a baby boy, 80 days for a baby girl. Of course, some modern people find fault with this and say, oh, that's misogynistic, or the ancients were just weirdly obsessed with purity and bodily fluids and so forth. But the truth is, however, this probably allowed a strong bond to form between mother and new baby. And, of course, that's actually backed up by modern scientific findings about attachment in a family. At any rate, at the end of this time, whether, whether for a girl or a boy, the parents were to offer a sacrifice for the child. And this is from Leviticus 12. When the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, and then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. And this, if, if nothing else, gives us a bit of a snapshot of the kind of people Mary and Joseph were. They were poor. They couldn't afford the standard sacrifice of a lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon, and they had to substitute, they had to opt for the less costly alternative. And I wonder what that must have been like for them, to, to know that they are the parents of God in the flesh, and yet to be too poor to even offer the, the proper, the good sacrifice that they were to make for his birth. Nevertheless, there they are in the temple courts with hundreds, maybe thousands of other people, and up walks this old man named Simeon. We don't really have any backstory for him. The text doesn't even specifically say that he's old. We only kind of infer that from some of the details that are provided. And it's kind of interesting for Luke. Luke really likes backstories, right? He really digs into Mary and and Elizabeth and Zechariah and all this stuff. But then in this passage, just up walks this random man called Simeon. text does tell us what we need to know, though, that's of theological significance, even if it doesn't tell us much about this man. It says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This, among other things, goes back to Isaiah chapter 40. And if you remember, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 marks this kind of radical turn in the tone of the whole book. It kind of ends one major section and starts another major section. And it begins with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago in my message on Zechariah, Israel had been waiting for this, the consolation of Israel, the fulfillment of their hopes. They've been waiting this for a long time, 400 years at least. For as long as anyone could remember and as long as their grandfathers and great-grandfathers could remember, they'd been living in this sort of weirdly in-between place as a nation. They'd returned from their exile in Babylon and they'd even rebuilt their temple, but there was still this sense that things were incomplete. The Old Testament had ended on this this hopeful and yet certainly unfinished note. And, And then silence. No more prophecy. No more scripture being written. Four centuries of that. So many in Israel were waiting for the unfinished business of the prophets to find its fulfillment. And yet Simeon is specifically singled out for his waiting. Because there are different kinds of waiting. There's passive waiting where you know something is going to happen, but you basically just sit around killing time until the thing should come to pass, if it's even going to happen at all. And then there's engaged waiting, where you're watching, where you're, you're standing on tiptoe, as it were, straining for the thing to actually come to pass, ready to go at a moment's notice. And this is the kind where you're paying attention and you're alert for any signal that, it, that it's go time. And Simeon is doing this last type of waiting. And it seems as though he had taken very seriously the prophecy at the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so there Simeon is in the temple waiting for this prophecy to be fulfilled. But he's not just waiting based upon a hunch. He's waiting with this sense of expectation and even urgency. The Holy Spirit, Luke tells us, is upon him. Simeon's not exactly a prophet with a capital P, the way Isaiah or Ezekiel or Elijah was. But there is this prophetic aspect about him, where the Holy Spirit is on him like he was the prophets of old, and God is telling him things. God is revealing things to him. God is showing him things. And specifically, God shows him that he will not die until he has seen the Messiah come. We can all think of things that we would love to do before we die, right? Bucket list items, you might call them. These often have to do with something interesting or important to you. Uh, Specifically, often they involve seeing something, the Great Wall of China or the pyramids or the Eiffel Tower or, or any of those kind of things, or maybe your favorite band in concert. Simeon also wanted to see something before he died. And Simeon did. We don't know exactly how the Lord revealed this to him. Was it in a dream uh, that, that the Lord showed what was to happen? The Lord showed him in a dream that the Holy Family was coming into the temple and what they'd look like, and then the next day he actually saw it. Did the Lord speak something just in his mind or with an audible voice? We don't know. 
But in any case, he sees Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus at the temple that day, and he knows, somehow he knows, that the deepest longings of his heart have now found fulfillment. And then he, he begins this blessing, which is, is kind of strange. I mean, a, a stranger offering, or, or we don't even know if he offered, it just says he took the child into his arms and blessed them. That would be a little weird. We've got a lot of little ones in church here today. Uh, if some random stranger, probably not as weird in their culture as we would find it offensive, but it was probably still a little weird. And we don't know if he made any introductions to Mary and Joseph, like, hi, my name is, my name is Simeon. I think uh, your baby's the Messiah. Oh, yeah, we think that too. Like, we don't know what happened. It, it was just, Luke leaves that out. Again, he only tells us what, what, needs, to be, what needs to be told. But, you know, there are just some people who exude a certain sense of welcome and peace. And usually babies can sense that, even if the parents are a bit apprehensive. I have friends who once met Eugene Peterson quite by accident and without recognizing him at first and, and described him in just this way in, in their interactions between him and their small child. And I imagine Simeon was this type of, of person uh, and that baby Jesus and him must have formed a bond. Again, we don't know if there was any small talk made because Simeon's first words recorded are thanksgiving and prayer to God. Lord, take me now. I have fulfilled what I've been waiting for and I can die in peace. He can die satisfied, not because he's seen the Great Barrier Reef or New Year's Eve in Times Square, but because he has seen the salvation of God. Not an abstract concept, not an idea, but actually the embodiment of that before him in the form of a tiny baby. He has seen what so many of Israel have longed to see for centuries. It's right there. He's actually holding it in his arms. Think of it. The incredible privilege he had to hold God in the flesh with his own hands and see him with his own eyes. It's incredible. But things start to get even more interesting. He was waiting, as Luke said, for the consolation of Israel. But he utters words that go far beyond just God's plan for Israel. He utters words that hearken back to Isaiah chapter 49. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Simeon is echoing almost word for word this prophecy from Isaiah. The fulfillment of the consolation of Israel also means salvation for the Gentiles. Right? This revelation of Israel's fulfillment it now has another revelation that it's for the Gentiles as well. There's a sense in which all the purposes of God and the history of the world and its civilizations and cultures and everything else, it keeps narrowing down and narrowing down and narrowing down and narrowing down until we're left with just these few brief snapshots in time from, from Luke's gospel in particular, right? The, the young Jewish girl at her prayers and the angel appearing and says, you're going to conceive in your womb and have a son. Some shepherds out on the hillside watching their sheep and suddenly they have this revelation that the Messiah has been born. And now this old man at the temple who, who explains what this all means. 
Right? The pyramids, the founding of Rome, the French Revolution, landing a man on the moon, all the, the big things we hear about in history books that were witnessed by thousands and recorded throughout world history. They all pale in comparison to this one moment in time, this old man going to his prayers at the temple and this young family walking in. Because in that moment, God's plans and purposes for his world and his people have entered a new era. So the first portion of Simeon's speech is a blessing, but it's actually more directed at God, as the text says. He took the baby in his arms, but he blessed God. He gave thanksgiving to God. But the second part is spoken to Mary and Joseph. Luke calls it a blessing, but it's, it's a strange blessing. Right? We've heard in just previous to this in Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest. We've heard peace on earth. and We kind of get warm fuzzies from that sometimes at Christmas. He'll save his people from their sins. That's all great stuff, but Simeon now explains a little bit more about what that means. This child is appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel. Jesus will be divisive. It's essentially the message of John the Baptist too, right? The Messiah's coming, and when he comes, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's going to gather the wheat into his barn. He's going to burn the chaff up with unquenchable fire. And of course, that's Jesus' own message, too, in his preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Choose the, choose the narrow gate and the hard road, or, or choose the, the wide gate and the easy road. He said he'd destroy, it, destroy the temple. Being, and because of that, because he was a divisive figure, it brought opposition. As Simeon said, he'll be a sign that will be opposed. We see this all throughout the rest of, of Jesus' story. His own people, and particularly the religious elite, oppose Jesus and his message. He's breaking the Sabbath. He's spending time with prostitutes and sinners. He doesn't teach according to the tradition of the elders. And finally, he said he'd destroy the temple and raise a new one. So it ends with, let's crucify him. Rising and falling, a sign they'll be opposed, and a sword. And that's where Simeon's speech ends up. Let's crucify him, at, at least with the benefit of hindsight that we have. A sword will pierce his mother's heart. And those of us who know the story and where it ends up, we can't help but thinking ahead to that, right? His mother at the cross, seeing him, seeing him nailed up there. wonder if she remembered this day then. So what do we make of all this? Well, I believe it's this. Simeon saw what everybody else saw in the temple that day. Right? He saw what the majority of the hundreds or even thousands of other people were seeing. But out of that big group, only Simeon understood it. Simeon, like everybody else, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. But he was the only one who actually understood what that was going to look like and the only one that recognized it when it walked right past. And to understand that, we have to come to terms with a key word in this passage and the title of this message, Revelation. Three key times it's used. It had been revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. He stated that Jesus would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And he stated that through Jesus, the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. So let's just look back to where we started at the very beginning of this message. Sometimes the majority is wrong. Sometimes the opinion of the masses misses something that's extremely important. And this seems to be what happened with the coming of the Messiah. Now, this is a strange and difficult thing to wrap our minds around. 
Pages and pages of prophecy that predicted a Messiah who would come and defeat Israel's enemies and reign on David's throne. That passage from Isaiah 40 that the mountains would be leveled and the valleys would be filled in to make a smooth way for the Lord. All flesh, it says, would see this together. And yet Messiah comes and only one old man actually seems to pay attention and some shepherds that were out keeping watch in the nighttime. Only, only a few people. When it happened, it was over in the margins. Seems to be it. Other than shepherds, Simeon and, and Anna in this passage, some pagan wizards from eastern lands showed up. But the majority of people missed it, even though it happened right under their noses. The only people who actually seemed to catch on to what God was doing were the people that God purposely let in on the secret. I particularly liked how our Christmas musical portrayed the nativity this year. If you saw it in there on the big stage, spectacular as always. Um, on the main stage, you had uh, the warrior angels with their, with their banners, their battle standards, with the lion of the tribe of Judah painted on those banners in gold. Uh, we had the, the angels that did the dance, the, the ballet number in front of them. And then behind it all, the, the archangel rising up over it all with the lights. And we capped it off with fireworks, glory to God in the highest, right? And then everything went dark. Except for over on this side, there was a single spotlight shining down on Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus off on the side in the stable with, with the baby. And it, to me that said, right, here's the spiritual reality, this huge thing that's going on on the center stage, right? This, this is the spiritual reality. This is glory to God in the highest. But then over here, we had what it actually looked like. A baby born in a barn, in humble circumstances, noticed by very few. Here's what it actually looked like. So what do we make of all this? In the big grand sense, I think we remember this. The incarnation of Jesus, indeed the whole story surrounding the nativity, the Christmas story, is bizarre and yet wondrous. It's not the sort of thing you'd just make up. It wasn't the sort of thing people were looking for then either. It wouldn't be the sort of thing we would look for now. God's ways are not the sort of thing we'd figure out and predict in advance with just our own mental horsepower. God's ways come to us and come to be understood by us only by revelation. That's the whole point, right? God had to come himself in the flesh to be the revelation of who he was. The word became flesh, John's gospel tells us, and, and dwelt among us to reveal himself to us. On a practical level, I'd, I'd like to just keep in mind a couple of things. The first one's a warning. We've kind of already been there, but the religious teachers of Jesus' day, the, the elite people that should have known, were not prepared for what they actually got. They had studied the scriptures, they had come to pretty well-defined conclusions about how God was going to act, and yet when God actually did act, it, it caught them off guard. Now, this doesn't mean that everything is up for debate. In the New Testament, God has given us further revelation about who he is, and how he has acted, and how he will continue to act. But there are still many things that remain mysterious. Let's maintain appropriate humility and let's allow the mistake of the religious leaders of Jesus' day and the fact that they basically missed him 
to be a warning to us against assuming we've got everything figured out. An appropriate humility in being open to God working in ways that we would not expect him to work in. So that's the warning. But the second point is an encouragement. Don't despair or lose heart if you don't see God working in huge, spectacular ways in your own situation. Remember that the defining act of God in history, the culmination of world history, happened basically in secret and no one noticed it. The most, the most fundamental divide in the universe, according to a biblical understanding, is this, right? God and everything else that is not God. And in the incarnation of Jesus, we have our Lord bridging that divide. Remaining God, but becoming a man. And we, we've struggled for 20 centuries to wrap our minds around how that could be. But by faith, we believe it. In the incarnation, God crossed the most fundamental divide. In an act, I mean, at some level, undetectable to us, that must have shook the universe to its very foundations. And yet no one noticed, or hardly anyone. And no one would have noticed unless God had clued them in. God's work in your life is not likely to follow a much different pattern, I wouldn't think. If he sent his own son into the world and it kind of went unnoticed, perhaps his work in your own life may happen in relative obscurity as well. But the seeming smallness or lack of noteworthiness doesn't make it any less real. The majority opinion of our world that notoriety and influence and power and fame and money and looks and a social media platform and personal branding and success, success, success and likes and followers, that has no bearing. It does not vary in any direct way with what God is is doing in your life. The message of this season is God with us. Andrew mentioned that already. Emmanuel, God with us. That's a truth. That is a truth that remains true whether we feel like it or not, whether it looks from the outside like it's true or not, whether the majority believes it or not. It remains true because it's a thing that God actually did in history. And it's a thing that he promised to us that he would be with us forever. So let's remember that. And I can think of no better way of remembering that than what we're about to do over here. To gather around the Lord's table, as Christians have been doing for centuries, to, to celebrate and remember his death, to affirm that he is with us, present with us always, where we gather together, and to proclaim that he will come again. Whatever unfinished business there is, he will come and wrap that all up someday. So I would invite those who are serving